We talked about the man and now let's talk about the book. Is the book really unique compared to, or even if you don't compare it to anything else, are there features that come out at you that is really <laughs> gripping? Here's number one. It's amazingly written. There are seven points in that itself. It's written in different generations, different authors, different places and circumstances, different times and moods, and these seven points we're going to look at one by one. Different generations. The first author was Moses. Last author was John, a period of approximately 1400 years. There's not another book in the world that took that long to write. Different authors. Moses was educated. A leader, Joshua was a military general, David was a shepherd as well as a king, Daniel was a prime minister, Amos was a herdsman, Luke was a physician, Matthew a tax collector, Peter was a fisherman, Paul was a Jewish rabbi, Mark was a personal attendant. Can you see the spectrum of different types of people? Different circumstances in which it was written. Moses while traveling, Jeremiah was in a dungeon, Daniel was in a palace, Paul was in Various towns free as well as imprisoned, David as a fugitive, Luke on extensive travels, John in lonely exile. Different moods, Moses as an undisputed leader, David as an outlaw and king, Solomon in prosperity and in later in life in complete dejection. Daniel was peaceful as well as perplexed, he sometimes didn't know what he himself wrote. Jeremiah was in deep grief and bitterness, Isaiah in solid conviction and hope, Luke in exactness and detail and Paul with the sternness and tenderness of a father. Different literary styles, storytelling, historical, poetry, romance, didactic, personal letters, biography, autobiography, code of law, prophetic, parables, symbolism. One book written in three different continents, in Asia, in Africa, and Europe. Three different languages, mainly Hebrew in the Old Testament with some Aramaic. In the New Testament it was mainly Greek and some Aramaic. So Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. What is one word that goes through all of these? Come on. Different. Thank you. Different, different places, different authors, different circumstances, moods, literary styles, continents, languages, and yet amazing harmony because there's a single source, single story, single hero. Let's just choose 10 people on earth, my friends. Maybe a president of some place and a military general and a, and a teacher and a farmer and a scientist and a preacher and tell them to write whatever is in your heart. Whatever you feel really impelled to write, write and see whether all these 10 will write the same thing. Will they choose the same topic? Will it be geography or science or history or maths or what is the topic that these 10 will choose? Will they choose one? If they choose to write a story, will it be the same story? And if it is the same story, will it be the same lead character? There is not a single idea that can enter into our minds that a fiction written by 20 different authors will have the same story and the same lead character. And therefore, if we see a story like that, we will have to conclude that it could not be fiction. It most probably was a real story with a real plot with a real hero. That's why it's one story. There is not another writing in the world that has that. Amazing influence. Since the dawn of civilization, no book has inspired as much creative endeavor among writers. 
No other book in all human history has in turn inspired the writing of so many books as the Bible. Go to any bookshops and see how many books from this one book. Civilization has influenced more by the Judeo-Christian scripture than by any other book or series of books in the world. Amazing preservation. People, you know, they'll, they'll cast so much of doubts on, on, on what is there. They say, how do we know it was there? But look, this is the only book that had professional copiers generation after generation. Jews preserved it as no other manuscript has ever been preserved. They kept tabs on every letter, syllable, word and paragraph. Whoever counted the letters and syllables and words of Plato or Aristotle, Cicero or Seneca. For 2,300 to 3,900 years, the text of proper names has been transmitted with the most minute accuracy, a phenomenon unequaled in the history of literature. It may be safely said that no other work of antiquity has been so accurately transmitted. You just look at the way it was brought to us and compare any other writing. They have tried to compare to Shakespeare's writing. Now Shakespeare's writings were written after the after we had printing presses. And still, in every one of his 27 plays, there are at least 50 places where it's in question. And those 50 places can change the story itself. And look at this, thousands of years. And when they saw the Dead Sea Scrolls, the book of Isaiah is exactly what is there in your Bible today. Amazing survival. This is the only book to be repeatedly banished and attempted to be destroyed completely. Did you know that? No other book has been, has been attacked generation after generation. So many times. And naturally, you know, as an inquirer at that point, I stopped and I said, well, if that's the case, why? Why would this book be beaten against? And why would it survive such an onslaught? You know why? At least what I came to. The reason why people get angry with it is the reason why it will survive. If you don't like something that will not catch fire and burn and you're so angry because it will not catch fire and you want to destroy it and try to destroy it by burning that you will fail. You first have to take away what is protecting it from the fire and then you can destroy it. The features must be taken away and then you can attack it. The features that make people angry are two. It's radical claims and it's radical effects on people's lives. You hate it for that. And that's the exact reason why it will survive. Because you can't take those two away from the book. You cannot take away its radical claims. You cannot take away its radical effects on people's lives. And therefore, it must survive. No other book has been so chopped, knifed, sifted, scrutinized, vilified, and been subject to such a mass attack as the Bible with such venom and skepticism on every chapter, line, and tenet. No other book has that. Emperors and popes, kings and priests, princes and rulers have all tried their hand at it. They die, the book still lives. A classic example 
of this statement here is the story of Voltaire, the French thinker and philosopher, an atheist, who died in 1778. And he said, within a hundred years of his death, Christianity, this outmoded, archaic, obsolete idea, will be wiped out from the face of this earth. That was his prediction. Everybody thought, of course, Voltaire, he is the thinker, he is the philosopher, most probably it will come true. Fifty years after his death, his house was bought by a society. And in his basement were printing presses that he used to print his own literature. And this society happened to be the Geneva Bible Society that bought his house and printed Bibles by his, his printing presses in his own basement. Amazing circulation. If you reach 100,000 sales, then you become a New York Times bestseller. Wow. If you reach one million, then you've got to write home about it. By the time you reach 10 million, you've become famous on earth. 10 million copies of your book sold, yes, 10 million, 20 million, 30 million, boy, you're way up there. What about an ancient manuscript, 2,000 to 3,000 years old, that was kind of translated into our languages? Who do you think will buy such a book? And yet, Look at this report of 1998 from the United Bible Society. 1998 scripture distribution report, the total distribution copies of the Bible or portions thereof in 1998 reaches a staggering 585 million. Why this book? Why not some red hot novel, you know? A science fiction, you know, those thrillers. You can write whatever you want, you know, and grab the people's attention. Why this book, an ancient manuscript, 2,000 years old, being distributed at 585 million pieces in one year? Somebody explain that. Amazing translation. If you have your books translated into, you know, two or three languages, boy, you kind of feel good, you know. You're, this book that I'm selling here, incidentally, I do have, I have written a book which has all that I have said so far in that. The same title, Come Search With Me. And you know, when you become an author, you know, it's kind of uh, quite gratifying when somebody says, can I translate your book into my language? Yep, there's this guy who came from, uh, well, right now there's one from Montreal who said, can I translate into French? And I said, of course. Somebody else from Australia said, you know, I'm from the Europe, can I translate into Yugoslav? I said, good idea. You feel good when, you, when people say, let's translate it. He wanted to translate into Malay and some other languages. And when I went to India, just last week I was in India, talking about the same thing to young people there. And somebody came up and said, look, we've got so many languages in India, can we tr start translating it? I said, of course. You feel that there's a need, when they say translation, you feel that probably it's, it's reasonable and it's most probably going to have a wide effect. So translation is an idea that the book may be kind of relevant. Osho's books on mysticism has been translated into 40 languages. I know another lady who's the most prolific woman writer in history, her name is E.G. White, translated into more than 100 languages 
Boy, that's impressive, don't you think? How many languages are there according to the United Nations? About 6,000 on Earth. If you take a thousand of those languages, you would have covered maybe 95 to 96% of the population. The rest of them have small groups here and there, but 6,000 of them. There is the Wycliffe Translation, Translating Foundation, I think it's called. They have about 6,000 people working on translations today. 850 of those are translations they're doing right now. 450 of those translations are new languages. Can you imagine why this book has to be translated so much? And yet, this is the point that I want to make. We are less than a generation away from witnessing the world's first universally translated text. At the rate that that foundation is going, we may have the Bible translated into every language on earth. Where is two or three languages and 6,000 languages? Which other piece of literature comes anywhere close to this? Why so many people struggling to do such an immense task like this? Translated into every text, every language on earth? The Bible is also the first major book ever translated in the history of this world. The Old Testament Hebrew was translated into Greek by 70 scholars in Alexandria, and that's why it's called a Septuagint. 70 scholars. It's the first, now look at this. It is the first major book to be translated. It is at present the most translated book in the world. And tomorrow it will be the only book that is translated into all the languages on earth. Show me another book that has these kind of characteristics. And so, amazingly written, amazing harmony, amazing influence, amazing preservation, amazing survival, amazing circulation, and amazing translation, there is a book that is unique in every sense of the word. Therefore, these two, the man and this book, are backed by a credibility that is clear and convincing, and nothing in our existence can equal this. Therefore, I take my stand here. I don't think it's wrong to take a stand. Do you think? Don't you think it's reasonable that I take a stand here? Yeah. If you show me something else, well, I'll go there. But if until that time, I'll stand here. <laughs> because this is the most reasonable. You know what Benjamin Warfield of Princeton University said? We do not follow Jesus despite reason. We follow him because it's the most reasonable to follow him. Yeah. And when you find a reason and you have an experience with him, a personal experience, this combination of a reason and a personal experience is the rock on which you will stand. If you have either only one of them, you are still shaky. And that is my mission to the world. Look, friends, there is a foundation we can build on. God has given us enough of evidence out there. Our feet can stand on rock, will not slip. There is not another claimant in the world that can come anywhere near this man and this book. You are standing on solid ground. Only then can you die for a cause. If you have big questions in your mind, you can't do that, my friends. You still will suffer doubt. Here also there is doubt, but the weight of evidence is far too strong to entertain the doubt for any period of time. All right, we have 
kind of completed the comparison and now to that question. The most innocent dying the most horrible death? Why? That will take the next so many minutes till the end. And I would like to confess that here I changed my whole voice and my whole attitude. I cannot now anymore have this cold calculating attitude that we had all this while. Yes, give me the evidence. One, two, three, four. Make a, make a case. Make a, an argument. Make a good reasonable deduction. That we've done now. We've formed it. Now we have to ask another type of a question. Give me the inside story. Who is this man? What relation does he have to me? How come that happened? That the most innocent died the most horrible death. We go to, I've written it out as goodness, justice and mercy, but in my book I have entitled it The Supreme Transaction. But before we go into that, I think it will be wise or good to define certain words. And these definitions I'm going to give are not standard by any means. I'm giving them my own definition so that the picture becomes clear, okay? So here's the definition. First of all, righteousness. What is righteousness? Big words we use. It's doing something correct. So how do I know it's done something correctly? You can do something correctly with a bad motive too. So what makes the motive righteous and unrighteous? There's one simple rock-bottom definition of righteousness. You first, not me. It is the simplest, the most pointed definition I have found. And if it is that pointed, it will run the deepest as you will see just now. Unrighteousness is exactly the same. Unrighteousness or badness is exactly the opposite of that. Me first, not you. All that is of goodness comes out of you first, not me. All that is of badness comes out in me first, not you. Justice, punishment should be equal to the crime and there should be a law which is unchangeable. Only then can it be justice. The law, the punishment and the reward cannot change even one iota that is called justice sometimes we think of you know eye for eye and sorry eye for eye and a tooth for tooth as being kind of barbaric and you know primitive but do you know that is the highest form of justice an eye for a tooth or a tooth or a life for a tooth would be complete injustice and that's why we have a law we have the codes the international you know the codes of any criminal codes of countries what they are trying to do is just make those equal. Mercy then comes in. If you have only justice to live by, it'll just destroy every relationship on earth. So there's something known as mercy, but mercy cannot destroy justice. This is the foundation. The law, the reward, and the punishment are simply changeless. Sometimes we think of mercy as somebody coming to say, hey, I'm sorry, I, I took your, uh, you know, I took your stuff. I say, okay, it's okay, just go. That's merciful. That's not mercy. You have destroyed justice. If my son broke the window out there, playing a ball, threw a ball and broke the window, 
then justice requires that if I'm his dad or him, one of us must go there and fix that whole thing up. If you fix only one window pane when you broke four, that's not justice. I must go and fix all four. Mercy comes in only at one point. Who will pay? It cannot change justice. And therefore, if justice is, justice is satisfied once the axe falls, mercy allows it to fall somewhere else. Justice as a cannon will fire, mercy can direct the cannon, but it cannot stop the firing. If it can stop the firing, then it, can, it is tampering with justice, and if you can tamper with justice, you don't need either justice or mercy. Just live as you please. Are you with me? And that's why one of the few groups on earth is the Seventh-day Adventist Church which says you cannot tamper with the law. If you can tamper, everything becomes arbitrary. Mercy can only direct the cannon. It cannot stop it from firing. Heaven, do you know why we have descriptions of gold and gems and your pearly gates? Do you know why? God is trying to talk to us. We have lost our sense of values. We think things, a treasure chest of diamonds, that is the treasure. No, my friends, the truth is the greatest treasure on earth is a heart-to-heart -heart relationship with somebody else. That is the greatest treasure in the universe. Heaven is heaven not because of the gold. <laughs> heaven is heaven because somebody is there. His name is God, the Father, and Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. That is what makes it heaven, not the gold and the pearly gates. God's immediate presence is what makes it heaven. When people on earth recognize that, and then two people become friends, it's in heaven on earth. And when a person and, heaven and God get together, that'll be heaven. When God and God get together, it is more blissful than heaven. Are you with me? Same thing with hell. Hell is not burning so much and burning sulfur. That'll, that'll, that'll scald and burn your skin and you'll feel hurt on the skin. A broken relationship will go to your heart. And that's why hell is a God-forsaken, God-abandoned place, not where it's burning. It might be burning there. Something may be burning there. That is not hell. Hell is this. And when human beings do that and get mad with each other, it's hell on earth. And when God and a human permanently break the relationship, it becomes hell. And when God and God break the relationship, that pain is worse than hell. Death, there are two types. One is called a sleep and is temporary, the consequence of sin, the principle of sin on earth, so everybody dies. Not a punishment. Number two is a punishment. There is this fire and that hell and what we said was permanent. It's called a punishment when somebody makes an irrevocable decision that they will stick by their sin and stay there no matter what. Then God has to say, okay, I'll let you have your way. In Hebrews 2, it says there's something known as suffering of death. If you are going to suffer something, 
it must happen when it's alive, when you're alive. The death will knock the suffering off. And so the suffering of death is actually when you are alive. It is the impending sense of doom when you realize that this relationship between you and God is hopelessly and irrevocably shattered. It's something that will crush your spirit completely. That is the suffering of death. With these words, we'll take up the story. Thursday night, the Passover scene meal has been over, and he walks with his disciples towards the Garden of Gethsemane. At the gate, somewhere there, he leaves nine of his disciples, and he says, you three come with me. This is very special. And then as he goes into, the, into that garden, he leaves the three and walks staggering and simply falls to the ground. You watch carefully and his lips are moving. And he's saying words that he has never said before. Dad, is there another way? This is too painful. Stop, please. I cannot bear it anymore. Is there no other way? Do I have to go through this? I cannot take another step. What's happening? Lost his courage? Suddenly trace, retracing his steps, cowardly? Compare this these words with the story of Hus at the, at the stake. When Hus was sentenced to burn at the stake, they tied him to the stake and then they put this wood around him and the usual, usual way they do it is the person comes from the back and lights the fire at the back. When the torch bearer came with the light, he called out to him and said, wait a minute, come and light the fire before my face. If I was scared, I wouldn't have been here. And how about the women and the, and the children in the Colosseums of first century Rome? They knew what was going to happen. And right in the middle of the arena, they would hold hands. They could hear the gates rattling and in a little minute, those ravenous hungry beasts would be just bounding across the arena and tear them to pieces and they would hold hands and sing. Why was Jesus not singing? What is he running away from? That's a big question, isn't it? An ordinary question to an inquirer. We are inquirers here. How come he couldn't stand like Hus and, Jer Hus and say, Oh, come on, light the fire before my face. No, he couldn't say that. Something was different here. The usual story that we talk about the cross is, there was a great deal of hate. They hated me without a cause. See, the Romans and the Jews hated each other. There, was, there is something about religious hatred that is, runs really deep and, and disastrous. And the Jews and the Romans just hated one another. And yet when Jesus came on the scene, they said, let's hold hands and pour our combined hatred on this man. There was hate. Number two, there was shame. He endured the cross despising the shame. I, I already depicted a little bit of you. That a person who was crucified was crucified stark naked. And that was, like I said, to remove every last vestige of dignity in the person. 
and a person who was hung on the cross. If you read Deuteronomy 23rd chapter, you will find that anybody who is killed by hanging on the cross is under the curse of Jehovah. He died the most shameful death of anyone. High in crime, low in society, thrown off by God himself. There was physical suffering. They called him to a place called Calvary where they crucified him. There's a lot of descriptions of crucifixion. It's awful. And by the time the Romans came around in the first century, they had perfected crucifixion. You do know what, what's the meaning of perfecting crucifixion? They perfected it to the point where you have the maximum pain without passing out. The whipping was just like that. They were trained to do the whipping. If you just took a whip and whipped somebody else badly, he'll faint away with the pain and there's no more fun left. But these guys knew how to whip so that you do not pass out but, but is inflicted the maximum pain. And then hanging there on the cross, your shoulders go out of joint when they bang the thing down. Your hands are nailed, your feet are nailed. The only thing you can try to do is lift yourself up a little bit so you can breathe. Your blood is being wasted away and so you become dehydrated and burning with thirst. And then how do you they die? By suffocation. Because your shoulders are like this and just squeezes in onto your neck. And little by little there's less and less of oxygen going into your brains. And by the time a day or two is gone by, there's not enough oxygen going to your brain and you go raving mad. Scream and shout there, cursing God and man. It's an awful death to die. And human beings and all of us, when we look at the cross, we we'll look at that, Jesus is dying for me. That's what bought my salvation. Look at the cross, look at the nails, look at the crown of thorns, look at the spear in his side. Really? If this is what really happened, he should have been able to sing through it because the others also were crucified. He was not the only one crucified on earth. There were hundreds of others crucified. So why don't we point to them and say, oh, look at that. Do you know some artists have put the other thieves on the cross and just put tied ropes around there? Only Jesus is nailed? That's all wrong. Everybody was nailed. They are trying to show that Jesus suffered more because he was nailed. Look, if the nails and the crown of thorns and the spear in his side really bought salvation for you and me, then we have to agree that God and Satan and Pilate and the Romans and the priests all got together and worked out your salvation and mine. But it did not happen like that. Only God was working out salvation, not Satan and the Romans and Pilate. So we cannot point to the nails. The nails didn't buy your salvation, my friends. The crown of thorns did not. The spear in his side did not buy your salvation. Then what did? We have to go back to the story. The words in that Hebrew scripture and the Greek scripture say, before the foundation of the world. So somehow our minds must go back there, at least in concept. What happened back there? Scholars will tell you there are two covenants. Are you with me? Yeah. Old covenant and the new covenant. The old covenant, you got to do a whole lot of stuff. The new covenant, God does it in you. And we say, okay, there are these two covenants. Actually, there are three. 
the primary covenant is what saves. The first and second covenant is used in between. So what is the primary covenant? The primary covenant is not a covenant between God and humans. It is a covenant between the members of the Godhead. They got into a covenant and the description is that they clasped hands and they took an oath. If man should ever fall, we will restore man no matter what the cost to ourselves. That is the covenant that saves. And in that covenant, when man did fall, the human race was gone off on the other path. One of them had to become a human. That was a part of that covenant. And that human had to come from the Godhead. Now can a person who is God become human and leave aside his God, his God characteristics? No, he can't stop being God. What he did was lay aside his rights as God, his prerogatives as God, and become a human. But humanity had already failed. If he picked up humanity as it was and lived by it, the next moment he would give in to sin because it had already fallen, it was corrupted now. How to live? There was only one way. He would lay aside his divinity, he would take on corrupt humanity, but he would deny that humanity in his life and live by the life, the morality, the wisdom, and the strength that would, supplied, that would be supplied by his father moment by moment. Because if he was still a divine being, he's cheating. He's saying he's a human, but he's a god. And if he came and lived as a human by that humanity, then he would be corrupt. The only way was to take the corrupt humanity, but deny it by choice. And by choice, keep a connection with his father who would provide to him his morality, his wisdom, and his strength moment by moment. And that is why every teaching, this is what he said, I can of myself do how much? Nothing. The Father who sent me gave me a command what I should say and what I should even speak. I get tired when it's five minutes of prayer. <laughs> I want to get up from my knees. He spent whole nights. What was he doing there? He was chalking out the next day, the whole day. Watch out, son. The priests will come and rile you up. Don't lose your temper. You're a human. You will lose your temper. Keep the connection with me. I'll protect you. You will have to perform a miracle. Your faith will waver. Keep the connection with me. I'll perform it through you. When you see 5,000 people, you'll wonder how you're going to feed them. Keep your connection with me. Pray to me. I will do the miracle through you. Nobody could trip him up. Nobody could make him jealous or hateful. As long as he had that connection with the Father, every artful deception of the priests and the rulers, he was able to make, he was able to make out like that because of his connection. He knew what they were doing. He was also kept safe by the Father's hand. 
nobody could touch him. In return, the father was his completely dependable, completely reliable rock from where he got everything he needed. The safety, we see that people tried, beginning from Herod. They wanted to wipe him off, kill him. People during his ministry tried to kill him. But in John the 7th chapter, and John the 8th chapter, he says, my hour has not yet come. You cannot touch me until Thursday evening when the whole tune changed. This is your hour in the power of darkness. For this purpose I came to this hour. And he was staggering there. Wasn't this the man who stood and looked at the demons in the storm on the sea and said, stop it right now, I tell you, and it stopped. Wasn't this the man who looked at the dumb and to the, the lame and said, walk, and they walked. He would go to a corpse and say, let me speak life into you, and there was life there. And now, he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. His sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Do you know Luke who wrote that got it from an eyewitness? And do you know something? When you're under tremendous grief and the tension of a grief that is deep, your blood vessels can burst that most probably was real blood that came out. What is happening here? There was a paradigm shift. This lion of Judah, who could stand up and, 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 and make the demons beg at his feet, please, please, we don't want to go anywhere. Send us into the pigs if you want, but don't send us anywhere. And said, okay, I'll give you permission. Go into those pigs. He would, he would do the commanding until here on that Thursday evening when he said now this lion of Judah was becoming the lamb of God the difference was stark for the lamb of God we have to look at the sacrificial system the lamb of God is an effective lamb in the temple only if the lamb now becomes a bearer of sin and on him then who knew no sin, never known it in his life, in his heart ever, was placed the sins of the whole world from Adam to the last one who will ever live. Some people think of it as like a big weight maybe on his head or his shoulder or maybe a cloak of sin that was you know, wrapped around him. You know you can throw the weight off, you can take off this cloak. The description in the record is even worse and shocking. For he made him to be sin who knew no sin. He was made to be sin. He didn't just take your sin. He became your sin. And he couldn't do anything about it for the simple reason. But once he become, where, what are you going to do with it? You can't throw it off. It's not a cloak. It's not a weight. You became sin. And sin in its full-blown rebellious state and God cannot exist together. And so now God has to deal with it. And he was delivered up because of our offenses. Delivered up to what? The Roman soldiers? To Pilate? To the priest? Nope. He was delivered up to the full and final punishment of sin. 
because now he became sin. Who can punish? If America makes a law, can Sweden and Finland punish? No. The jurisdiction and the authority that makes the law is the only jurisdiction and authority that can punish. Who made the law? God. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. It was God who must now deal with sin. And that day hanging on the cross, the whole world was comparatively clean except for the center cross. And God now had to deal with it and the punishment of that is separation from God which is called hell. It began in Gethsemane and he knew it. And that is why we picture him clawing the earth and the ground there. Please don't drag me away from my father. Now this line is being cut. Don't do it, I can't bear it. This is my lifeline. That is the fundamental difference between Jesus and every other martyr on earth. For every other martyr host Jerome and the Colosseum in the Colosseums of Rome, the women and children, God was beside them. His sustaining, comforting, strengthening presence was right there. That is why they could sing. When God himself moves away, he's the source of the song. Nobody can sing, not even the Son of God can sing. But God is moving away. Somewhere along the line, his father fell silent because he must cut himself off. This is dealing with sin, not a playground. And Jesus knew it and he cried out, God, Dad. Will I come through? Okay. Silence. Dad, it was on your strength. It was on your assurance. I told them I would rise up the third day. Will I rise? Silence. All along I was strong for you, Dad. Now I need one word from you. Give me one word and it will be enough. Silence. Then as he realized that this was the shattering of a relationship because of sin. When he realized that this was a judgment from a righteous and a holy God against sin to which there can be no repeal. This was a street marked one way with no return. There was wrung from those pale quivering parched lips the bitterest cry this human, human, humanity can ever hear. Eloi. Eloi lama sabachthani, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now when I need you the most, where are you? This is the cry when the separation has been complete. The abandonment has been utter. When the cannon of justice points and there is no mercy to turn it somewhere else. This is the cry of the soul that's sinking into hell itself. In the midst of that superhuman agony came one flinging temptation. The priests and the rulers were there and they said, oh, think like you feel like the son of God hanging there. Let's make a deal. You come down from the cross and we'll believe that you are the son of God. 
didn't even know what they were asking for. They were asking for a miracle so that they would believe. And before them was the greatest miracle of all. Which is greater? To come down if you can or stay dangling there in torturous pain out of sheer love? They did not know, and sometimes you and I don't know, he hung there not to prove anything else, but because he was the Son of God. And for him to come down would have been to deny the very fabric of his character. He stayed there. He did it voluntarily. Who was he dying for anyway? His nation had rejected him. His community has booted him out. All his disciples had fled. One of his disciples had betrayed him, and one of the closest had even denied him with cursing and swearing. Who was he dying for? There was nothing to die for. How dark and hopeless the prospect of dying for zero. And yet he went ahead, voluntarily, to give us a chance. Finally, the cross. Crossroads? When you come to a crossroads, you have to make a choice. Finally, the cross is one single piercing choice. That's all it was. Save yourself or save this world of blundering wretches like you and me. Is there a choice? Consider the choice. On one side, the prince of heaven the commander of the heavenly host, the angels bow at his feet. And on the other side, ruthless, self-seekers, wretched, corrupt like you and me. What was there to choose? But sin, like love, has no reason. Sin with a reason is no longer sin. Love with a reason is no longer love. Love is a reasonless expression. It just goes on. And so we watch that. Watch as he makes up his mind. What tilted the balance? If you and I were there, what is the choice? Choose the commander, choose the prince. Why the slaves, the despicable ones? But he makes up his mind on this side. Why? 2,000 years later, there was a man, woeful and weak, bruised and battered, sliding down a slippery slope straight to perdition and to hell. His name was Dr. Pandit. And he saw him. And he said, I cannot let him go. And there woke up in his heart a wondrous compassion, so deep and so great that he forgot about himself. Now I use my name, you got to use yours. So deep, so great, he forgot himself. And then in the most brilliant demonstration of righteousness this universe will ever see, what's righteousness? You first, not me. In the most brilliant demonstration of righteousness, he turned to you and me said, you first, not me. Father, if there's a choice, them, not me.
goodbye forever. And somewhere along the hours as he hung on the cross, his father cut himself off from his son completely in a consummate act of justice against sin. And when his father cut that relationship, out went the hope of resurrection. He died with you and me on his mind, not himself. I have stood back sometimes in just utter amazement. What wondrous love is this, oh my soul. Oh my soul, in this is love, not that we loved him, but he loved us. And that's how he went to his death, with you and me on his mind. Righteous, loving to the nth degree. But come the third day he rose. How? Why? He died for everlasting? How did he rise up? Well, number one, he came from the realm of the infinite. Even the minutest insult would translate into infinite insult because he came from there. Even the smallest suffering would translate into infinite suffering because he came from there. His suffering was anything but small. It was horrendous. Gethsemane and the cross translates into that much of infinite suffering, enough to pay for every sin on earth. 1 John 2, 2 says he's paid for our sins and not only ours but the sins of the whole world. But he himself had never sinned. Did you catch that? And he had suffered the suffering of death. He had gone through it. He himself had never sinned. He paid for all our sins. Justice would still be maintained if he would rise up because he himself hadn't sinned. And therefore his father sent Gabriel down and said, call him back from the abyss of death and and, and complete darkness. Bring him back. This day have I begotten you, my son. And he brought him back. And when he came back, he came back with life that was original, unborrowed, underived. It was a life that was his own, eternal life, but with an eternal difference. He had sacrificed it. And now he cannot have it by himself. He must now gather it up, but share it with whosoever believed. What is the justice? The justice what he, God, shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. Justice was satisfied. And when he shares it with the others, this is the description. He might be, after his resurrection, he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Before the event, only begotten. After the event, firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Who are they? Who are they? Every one of you. Both he who sanctifies Jesus and God and those who are being sanctified, you and me, are all of one. One stock, one family, one blood. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Can you be then ashamed of him? If he is not ashamed to call us slaves from the slums of this earth as his own brothers, what reason have we got to be ashamed of him? It was after he resurrected, he said, his own words, go to my brothers. Say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father. That is why he is called brother. Not because it's a title. Our father is our father, not because it's a title known as father. It's because we are his sons and daughters. Because we share the life of his son. He is our blood brother. He is our blood 
related father. If this God, now I end with this statement. What is your response? This is mine. If this God was careful to preserve sufficient evidence to address my cold questioning intellect, which we did the last so many sessions, and if he left enough warmth and passion in his portrayal to grip my wandering emotions, then my response is from deep within call a place my heart, which now feels safe enough to hang its eternal destiny on this man whose story unfolds and is laid open in this book. So here I stand. I can do no other. So help me God. Thank you. Are there any questions before you have before that I just want to mention if you're going out all that I have said from the first uh, session till now is in my book which is available and since I'm a one-man ministry I've got to sell it not give it 15 bucks each it's cost 22 but I'm giving it 15 now if you want it they are here questions there are two yes 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 this poor man had lost his son to torturers who had tortured him to death. And in the bitterness of his soul, he had cried out that day, where was God when my son was tortured to death? The person beside him gently put his hand on him. Without really trying to bang at his emotions, he said, exactly where God was when his own son was tortured to death. He knows about you. There is no suffering on earth that those people up there who live in the, in the, in the dimensions of, of, of eternity does not know by experience. Nothing that you and I will pass through will ever go beyond what they went through. Any other questions? Space, say it again, please. Do you think the it was a plan or? Or did it just happen? Or did it just allow things to happen? Well, like, obviously, God did not put Christ on the cross. So he allowed that. Yes, he allowed the cross, but the cross didn't buy our salvation. Remember that. So if the Jews had accepted Jesus, and if Pilate hadn't sent him off to the, to the cross, God would still have to kill him. He didn't even have to come to this earth, actually, for that part. God could have taken him to some unnamed planet somewhere and wiped him off. You bear sin, I'll kill you. That's it. It's not that I want to kill you. Because if you look at really what happened, God and the Father are one. So who suffers more? We can't say anything of that. We can say both suffered. Both of them actually were crucified because both are one. But the fact is somebody had to do it and somebody had to receive it. Both suffered. God did it. It was his duty as judge and the final arbiter of justice to do it. And his son had to receive it because he was the lamb of God. 
So even if the Jews had never, if they had grabbed him and, and praised him as the savior of the world, they would have to, maybe with weeping, they would have watched God kill him. Knowing that it was his, their sins that, that was knocking him off. The suffering was not the cross. The suffering was a broken relationship with his dad, which was so painful that his heart muscle ruptured. That is why he died in six hours. A person who is hung on the cross dies in three days to seven days. He died in six hours. His heart was broken. Now you know where the word brokenhearted comes from. It is the truth. A person can have enough of grief and it can come to such a deep measure that your heart can rupture. You will die. That is what happened to him. That is what bought suffering. It was the rupture between God and God which is worse than hell. That is what bought suffering, not the thorns and the, and the spear and the cross. Don't, you can hang it around your neck if you want to, but that just depicts where it happened, not what happened. Um, when you don't have nine hours to go through this, yes. how, do you, how, do you, how do you find for your own self how you start this journey with someone who may be in choir? It's a very good question. I do not make an initial start anywhere. Let me give you one simple example of people you deal with and it can, you know, you, once you have this whole thing in your mind, you can start anywhere. And finally it will lead up to the person of Jesus. You can start anywhere. I had a nurse friend, male nurse, I work in the emergency room, so sometimes in between patients, he would talk. He said, I want to believe in God, but I simply cannot. I simply cannot. And the people who had tried to help him, that was a Christian institution, so you know, the doctors and nurses would take the Bible and boom, bang him. <laughs> 20 years, and he could not believe. He said, look, I, I want to believe, but I cannot. One day in the evening, in the night, he told me, man, I'm getting on in years a little bit. My son is growing up into high school. He's asking me questions about God. What do I tell him? I can't believe. What can I tell him? One day during our conversation, he just said, I love maths. And I said, do you like big numbers? He said, yes, very big numbers. <laughs> I said, does your son love big numbers? He said, yeah, big ones. I said, like 10 to the power of 20 and 30 and all that. <laughs> he said, yes. I said, I'll give you four. 10 to the power of 50, 10 to the power of 2,000, 10 to the power of 33,130, 10 to the power of 100 billion. If you were here yesterday, you would have known what I'm talking about. I just gave him those numbers. And he said, say that again. And he said, I told them the numbers again. He said, no, no, write it down on a little slip of paper. I wrote it down on a slip of paper. He took that slip of paper, folded it up, put it in his pocket, and just looked up at me and said, now I believe. That's it. I didn't know that he wanted that. I didn't know it at all. If you want to be a witness in his hand, people will ask you for what they want. If your antenna is up there, if you have really placed yourselves in his hand, if you have become an instrument in his hand, then watch him do it. He will bring you as an instrument there or he will bring them to you as, an, as, as the instrument. But he will do it. And when he does it, my friends, I'll tell you, you will be so happy, you will think that nothing on earth can equal that fulfillment. I have watched people change their faces right while I'm talking. 
I've had atheists become believers in one hour. I've had Hindus who walked in the morning and walked out in the evening as Christians. It's not because of what I said. That's impossible. It is because of that man and that book. And people have clapped like you all clapped. You know, applause. Every time I've spoken in a, in a secular university lecture hall, when I finished it like this, they always have clapped. When I was in the Philippines, there was 1,000 coming every night. And I still remember when they clapped, I said, I put up my hands and I said, who are you clapping for? Eloquence? Or a good set of information, evidence? What are you clapping for? I said, Kip Kino, when he ran the second marathon, back to back, and he entered the stadium, people knew there was history in the making. Nobody else had won the marathon back to back at the Olympics. Kip Kino from Kenya was going to do it, and as he came for that final round, 100,000 people stood to their feet in standing ovation. Who were they clapping for? The timekeeper? <laughs> it's time we clap for the champion. Don't clap for anybody else. But go ahead and clap if you feel like it, because an affirmation from one another is good. But remember, the one you clap for is the one who breasts the tape, not the one who's sitting there and finding out what time he did it, or even the nation that actually organized the whole Olympics. You don't clap for them. You clap for the champion. The Christian life is actually the description of a standing ovation to a champion. If you are sold out on that, who can be ashamed? Do you see how the title of our whole seminar fits in with the man in the book? But you've got to know that there's a basis. And once you know the basis, my friends, go out and tell the world. I'm a one-man mission. I don't have a big office or anything like that. And I'm one person, but I'm going to meet the world with this man. You join people like that? There are people who are coming up from all over the world that's watched it now. On their own, just rising up and standing, I'm going to be for Jesus. I'm going to be for the book. I'm going to stand for him. I don't care what happens. I make my stand here. It's an army that's coming along. You want to join? Is there anybody here who really wants to join the man and the book? Let's stand up and we'll have prayer. God our Father, wonderful, loving Father, sent your Son so that we can become sons and daughters of yours. At what cost? Thank you, God. We are totally unworthy, but still we rejoice, unworthy though we are, at such an immense possibility, becoming your own family member. Thank you. Teach us never to be ashamed. Teach us also to have tact. Teach us to listen to your voice so that we can speak for you and that your message will always find a place first in our own hearts. May we really know that you love from the depths of your own hearts and may we reflect that love to those around us. Thank you for this seminar time. Thank you for this uh, GYC. Thank you for each one who has come, for the organizers, for all of us. You have brought us here together. It's not by accident. Now as we go our ways, please walk with us. Show us the way we must do things and speak for you so that we will never be ashamed, so that you will be glorified, you will be honored in our life. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.
This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.